ahead and get started. How's everyone doing today? Alright, so for today, we're back in the Comparative Legal Traditions book, and today we're looking at Chapter 9. We're talking about the roles and actors in the common law tradition. So, who can tell me the three roles we're looking at today? Barrister, solicitor, and judge. Very close. So, we're looking at two independent actors, barristers and solicitors and then how or if both of those type of actors can become judges, and if they do, how do they become judges? So starting off with the legal education in the system, it's very different than what we experience here in the United States. The law profession is not something that's taught through the university system like it is here. People don't go to school necessarily to become a lawyer. They may study law while they're in their undergraduate program or even in their graduate program, but they don't necessarily do that to complete their lawyer training. That doesn't culminate in a bar exam like it does here and then a, a job as a lawyer at a firm. What legal training in the UK has become is more of a background education before you do on-the-job training. So lawyers in the UK are much more on-the-job experience, learning from other lawyers, doing internships, things like that. So we start off with the legal education. The separation of solicitors and barristers, which to us would both mean lawyers, um, goes back all the way to a couple centuries after the Norman Conquest. So we talked about the Norman Conquest a few weeks ago. That was back in uh, back over almost a thousand years ago, um, talking about how that um, the Norman Conquest is what first brought any kind of system of courts to England. So what came along with that was a need for some sort of formalized role to go along with the court, some way to have judges, a way to have advocates for people who wanted to be heard in front of the court, and those people were barristers and solicitors. Well, back then, the people that would help people be heard in front of courts were just lay, <coughs> were just lay people. They weren't people who had any kind of formal training. They hadn't done anything special to become a lawyer, a barrister, or solicitor. They just possessed more knowledge than the average person. So people who would want to help people go through a court case back then would be just people who are kind of hanging around the courts every day and if you came in and you wanted to have a case heard one of them would come up to you and say hey if I if you give me five pence I'll give you a hearing in front of this judge so it was a very informal system there was no legal training and there was no educational system as we know today um, originally these people worked more for the church than they did the common courts but the more England saw the church fall out of power and the courts come into power, the more the separation between church and state took over the tradition of lawyers as well. So back when the Norman... <coughs> lay people is just a word that means they're not, they're not any kind of government official. They're not... They're just people. They're people that don't have any kind of special degree, certificate, training. They're just people. Um... So these positions back then were divided into four groups. There were barristers and sergeants who did very similar things. They would actually prepare a litigation for the courts. They, they were the ones that would actually go to trial and try the cases for people. So barristers and sergeants were what we think of today as trial lawyers. Then there were also attorneys and solicitors 
who helped prepare litigation outside of court, who people could go to and say, I have a problem with this, but I have no idea what to do with it. Can you help me write up a case? Can you help me prepare some documents so that I can go to a barrister or a sergeant and have them try my case? Attorneys or solicitors? Now, over time, just through the way the English tradition has run, the word attorney just dropped out of being used and the position of sergeant was eliminated as courts changed throughout the years, so we're left with two things, barristers and solicitors. And those two traditions, although in America a lawyer is a lawyer, barristers and solicitors have been divided going all the way back to the Norman Conquest. So in England, we said there's not really a formal structure of law education. What there was was a little bit of civil law education. We talked about civil law earlier in the semester. That's the Roman law tradition. That's the codified structure of law. So people could go to university, Cambridge, Oxford, King's College, and they could learn about civil law. But they couldn't learn about common law, which is what England practiced. So learning about law in university was not a job training. It was philosophical. It was making yourself a more well-rounded, educated person, but it had absolutely no use in England's law system. So people that studied law commonly were either being prepared for a job in the clergy, they were being prepared for a role in Parliament, a seat in the House of Lords or the House of Commons, or they were being prepared to be wealthy landowners. The people of the day felt that wealthy landowners should all be well-educated, so law was part of that just background education. So the odd tradition that's very different from the United States that comes out of that kind of tradition of legal study, thank you, um, is that practicing law in England has never and still does not require any type of degree whatsoever. Still to this very day. So to be a lawyer, or rather to be a barrister or solicitor in England, you don't have to have a law degree. Now some people do, but there are other ways to become a solicitor or a barrister that don't involve any legal training in school whatsoever. So common law was eventually introduced into the university system, but it came along much, much later. The first law professor was Professor Blackstone at Oxford University. He was the first to actually teach a class about common law. And that wasn't until the 18th century, so we've skipped almost 800 or almost 700 years of no kind of formalized common law educational program. After Oxford introduced this, Cambridge, uh, King's College and University College, which those all four of those comprise the four major colleges still in London, um, all started developing common law programs, but enrollment wasn't a big deal. It, there wasn't any push to make that some kind of requirement for people who wanted to be barristers. It was just a course that was offered. Now in 1846, there was a comprehensive study that was published about law education, or the lack of law education in England, and this drove a little bit of membership in those classes. Um, so as the, these publications came out and as um, law degrees started being thought of as kind of more of an important thing, the United States was already in the practice of developing law degrees. Oxford and Cambridge in the 1850s finally came up with a degree of common law. So there is a degree available, it's just not required. And 
then after they came up with the degree system in about the 1870s, they finally had formalized departments that did nothing but concentrate on legal studies. So more like you'd think of your law school today. By the mid-1900s, there were only about 50 programs, 50 different law programs throughout the United Kingdom. Today, there's only a little more than 100. So compared to the United States, vastly less important in their educational structure. Now, another big difference between the United Kingdom and the United States is these degrees that I'm talking about that are offered in England even today are all undergraduate degrees. Your law degree does not involve going to school, getting a bachelor's degree, and then moving on from there. It is your bachelor's degree, or what they call your baccalaureate. So English students that want to study law, even today, make that decision going into their freshman year of college. Some make that decision even earlier because a lot of what they call secondary schools or what we call high schools, yes. We'll get into that, but no. Um, high schools offer in England very specialized programs. So, and we offer something similar. We do college preparatory programs and vocational programs. They offer much more direct training. If you know you want to be a barrister, you'll go into legal studies sometimes as early as your junior year of high school. And you'll specialize in some secondary school programs that deal with law education, and then you'll move on to your undergrad degree, which will be all law studies. Now, once a student in the UK has chosen to study law, they have two choices. They can either spend their entire undergraduate career focusing only on legal classes, which tends to prepare them more for being a barrister, or they can spend their entire undergraduate degree studying a mix of legal, philosophical, English, math, science, the whole range. Um, and that would be something that would be more preparatory for being a solicitor. And we'll talk about the differences between barristers and solicitors in a few minutes. But instead of going on to some kind of postgraduate degree, that almost never happens in the legal profession in England. Rather, people go into training on the job to either be a solicitor or a barrister. So the undergrad degree is the end of your formal training as a lawyer in the UK. So if someone wanted to become a lawyer, I already said a degree wasn't required. There's a different way to do it. There is a one-year course that people can just sign up for. It doesn't require any kind of degree before it or any kind of training to take one of two tests. You can either take the common professional exam, the CPE, or you can take the graduate diploma in law, the GDL. They're both one-year courses open to the public and each one leads to a different career. The CPE is traditionally used for solicitors. The D GDL was traditionally used for barristers. The CPE was traditionally used for solicitors. The GDL was traditionally used for barristers. Now that has changed. In very recent years, they've agreed on a common exam. It's still not a common job. Solicitor and barrister still means two different things but they've agreed that the CPE is the best course for everybody. So that it, it's become a common exam, but only in the last, I think, three years. So going
going along with the fact that barristers and solicitors completed different exams, they also still have different organizations that govern over them. We have the bar that governs over lawyers in America, the American Bar Association. But they have the Bar Standards Board for barristers, bar, barrister, easy way to remember it. And the Solicitor's Regulation Authority for solicitors. So those are the two professional bodies that govern on-the-job training. Now the catch with legal training in England is you can't be a solicitor and a barrister. Even though some job functions are the same, and in America you could get a law degree and become a judge, you can't be both a solicitor and a barrister. You have to pick what kind of lawyer you want to be. The choice is usually dependent on a few things. It depends on how much money you have. One is traditionally a position that's reserved for people who were born with a little more money and a little more free time. And the other position tends to be something that results in more practical work. Where, So can anybody tell me which one they think is which? Barristers usually want to go on to become judges. Solicitors usually want to max out at being solicitors. It's usually, if you're a solicitor, that's what you do, that's the end of it. So, either passing the CPE or maintaining some kind of load of law courses in your undergraduate career is all you have to do to start your on-the-job training. That's all you have to do to get to the basic level of either one of those careers. Now there's been a major push in the United Kingdom in the last few years to join these two different legal traditions, to make barristers and solicitors the same thing, because in the United States they are the same thing. They're lawyers. They're both just different kinds of lawyers. Um, but for the most part, barristers have resisted that change. They wanted to preserve the snootiness. <laughs> they wanted to preserve the eliteness of being a barrister and the importance that goes along with that and the prestige and the class and all that kind of stuff. So even today, those are still divided positions. So let's talk about solicitor first. Solicitor tends to be, like I said, the more basic of the two positions. It's something that people do because they want to become a solicitor. They don't do it with a higher career in mind. Now, contradictorily, it takes longer to become a solicitor than it does to become a barrister but it's generally considered to be easier work. It's not as mentally taxing, it's not as financially taxing, so a lot more people become solicitors than barristers. So after you either complete your law courses or you take your CPE, a would-be solicitor has to register with the Solicitor's Regulation Authority Legal Practice Course. So that's the next step. So you don't just get by at the CPE exam, there's another exam after that. The legal practice course is a year-long course, and it's just another level of qualification. And after you complete that year of training, you have to become a trainee solicitor. So you're still not a full solicitor. You have to do more on-the-job training. You have to follow a real solicitor, help prepare legal briefs, help litigate court, uh, cases, but you can't do any of that on your own just yet. So a trainee solicitor position is something that happens for two years and it is a very poorly paid position. So it takes a lot to stick it out and make it through those two years. 
Now, once those two years are up, it's not a performance-based evaluation. Once you've done your two years, you are a solicitor. Um, when you become a solicitor, your name is added by the what's called the master of the rolls, who is the person who keeps lists of all the legal employees of the United Kingdom. And your name is added to a list of existing solicitors. So if people want to have a case developed, if they want legal briefs prepared, documents, legal advice, things like that, they will go to this role and they will look up solicitors and your name will be on it. Some background of the position, how it got to be how it is. Um, this position is one that originated from the attorneys and the solicitors that originally existed way back after the Norman Conquest. And they were the people that helped in the common law court system to prepare litigation for cases. They weren't the people that ad advocated in court. They weren't the people that actually tried the cases. They did all the background research. And they usually didn't have the same level as, of education as barristers because even back then, without the legal education system, people could still go to school. They just wouldn't be studying law. Barristers commonly went to school. Solicitors commonly didn't. Um, originally, uh, solicitors lived and learned with barristers. They lived at what they call the inns of court. It's a practice still done today. But in the 16th century, the inns of court were taken away from solicitors, the privilege of living and studying there, and given only to barristers. So today, there are still groups that they call the inns of court, and we'll talk more about those later, and only barristers live there. It's a practice that's gone out of, it's gone out of practice for solicitors. Like I said, financially, it's considered a lot easier to become a solicitor, so there are about 100,000 currently practicing in the United Kingdom, which is a great deal more than you'll find barristers. It's widely considered to be a less stressful job. Obviously, you're still not, solicitors still don't really practice litigating in front of the court. They just prepare litigation before it goes to court, so it's considered to be a little less technical, a little easier. However, current solicitors make as much, if not more, than many barristers because solicitors have the right to develop law firms like we have here in the United States. They have the right to become partners in those firms. Um, after, of course, being in there for a while, they buy into the firm and then get a percentage of all the cases that that firm takes on. Um, and many private firms now during that two-year training period where you're a trainee solicitor, many private firms that are interested in certain solicitors coming out of their CPE exam will pay for those two years of training. So it used to be a poorly paid position. Now, depending on how good you are, it might be a well-compensated position. So some of the bad stigma of being a solicitor has kind of gone away. However, even though firms can be developed I know that's a practice here in the United States that we see a lot of. In the UK, for the most part, solicitors either practice alone or practice in small groups. Big law firms like you see here in the US are just not the thing in England. So a solicitor's main role is advising clients on legal matters, advising clients on business matters that somehow involve the law, or sometimes advising on personal issues that might somehow involve themselves in the law, like matters of divorce, uh, matters of property rights, things like that. They also accompany barristers to court, but they don't actually try the cases themselves. 
think of them as what we might consider a paralegal, but with a little more authority. Now in the 1980s, there was a law passed in the United Kingdom that gave, um, gave solicitors the right of general audience to all courts, which means it gave them the right to appear before any court. However, the way the practice has gone for so many centuries, most solicitors still don't argue in front of courts. Now, the change in the 1980s occurred because previous to this, the main role of a lot of solicitors were property rights. They dealt a lot with mortgages, ownership, signing deeds, paperwork that would go along with buying property. But in the 1980s, that role was given to estate agents or what we think of as real estate agents. And so solicitors lost a lot of their business. Yeah. They can actually argue in front of any court now. In the night up until the 1980s, in like say the 1960s and 70s, they were given the right to litigate in front of what they call the common courts. So, hi. Sorry, you guys have a guest speaker real quick, so we're going to pause there. Center of Europe. It's considered the center of Europe because that is where the center of the 18th century came. 
Alsburg is not a French name, it's a German name. Um, it's in the tradition called Alsace. And if you know anything about the region, it comes from once several times it's been German influenced. And so the German influence is always out in the West. Um, so Alsburg is not a French name, it's a German name. Um, but yes, the European Parliament for the European Union was there. The European Union was like the biggest and greatest experiment of our time. And the European Parliament is the only directly elected House of the European Constitutional Parliament in the world. Um, so the Parliament is there. The European Court of Human Rights is also there. I've been mentioning that a lot, actually. And the Council of Europe is also somewhere, but it's also there. The Council of Europe is different from the EU, but it's close to the same. So this is one of the huge reasons why we pushed this program. It is a political science program, but you don't have to be a political science major to do this work. We have courses in human rights, uh, economics, business, languages, literature. Um, we had a film screening last semester in Italy, so we have an engineering component. I mean, you don't have to be a political science major. Um, it's very unique because all the concentration institutions, they take you online. You go to college, you go to work. They also take you to an overnight trip to Luxembourg and Brussels. So there's more than one destination. They also take you to numerous trips across the great Germany, no, the, sorry, to Germany. <laughs> so you go to the Federal Bank, the Constitutional Court, and the Prosecutor's Office. Um, professional visits. We have parliamentarians in Alsburg. If you're a member of Parliament of Utrecht and Strasbourg, a lot of the MEPs stay in Utrecht. And it's actually been really interesting. Two weeks later, I was actually supposed to be arriving at Alsburg. So every parliament has their own MEPs. Um, but anyway, this is where you stay. This chateau. That is not photoshopped. It's really, really close to that. This is a 650-year-old castle. And it is nestled in an absolutely beautiful park that's scattered with modern art pieces and medieval structures and stuff like that. And it's also in the Lake Merritt. So it's a great place to go biking. And um, if you bike from Nice to here, noon at Alsburg, it's still really, really early. You bike like another mile and you'll see like this green, green carbonated looking mixture that you really can't really tell. It's really, really neat. And there's also lots of hidden underground locations and places you can bike to while you're there. You can bike to the Rhine River and see Germany on the other side. It's really, really neat. It's a neat little place. The chateau has everything. It's a laundry facility, Wi-Fi. Bookshelves are basically German with a lot of artwork in them. I love those. I think those are the best ones. Um, so anyway, it's very unique, and that's also another thing that makes this program so great, is that you have studies to do here. It's really neat as well. Um, this program is with the University of Strasbourg. It's the largest university in France with 37,000 students. Um, it's pretty much just like if you were taking classes here. You just take some tests, some modules. You don't make money on this. It's only for the Alsace students. Students and also Germany does not allow you to go abroad and study for two years. So we don't encourage going to teach here. Um, let's see, you're with the international student body. So you're not always with Americans. We have people from across the world. Of course, Germany, France, Mexico, Russia, Serbia, all these different places. So in a class like European integration, we spend one lecture on the European Everyone encouraged, and I'm trying to, I'm 
only sort of a sense of justice. But don't let that, you know, give you the impression that you can't take those steps. That is not true. When you actually go to the university threshold, you are in those systems. So it's kind of like here at Davis Bridge. You can look at the catalog and see what's there. So you're not restricted to looking at those classes. There's just, I mean, there's some classes that you look through the aperture for some of the interviews. Like there's like a, all these excursions and stuff like that. And it doesn't even mean you're studying for them. I mean, they're just having their own excursions. Like having the right aperture for that kind of thing. I think that's kind of fair. <laughs> and you do get credit for it. I think that's kind of fair. Um, but in terms of like classes, classes at the university threshold, you are not restricted to looking at those classes. And um, I will say this. Our coordinator is our, you know, our department chair. He is very, very, very willing and very, you know, he wants to send as many students as it is possible. And we do need to fill those seats. So he has done a lot from, and he's a chair, so he's able to get those students wherever they want to get them to, and the credit's still going to him. Very, very willing to work with us. Okay, well, I'll leave these brochures here. You can take them if you need to, if you have questions. Um, if you don't get the copy here, you can just Google it. The website, again, is on here. Some information is on here. Uh, our Department of Social Contact Information is here. I'll write my name and your name as well because he's the academic side and I'm more on the clinical and I do student stuff. So um, you can email either of us though. I mean, there's the difference between emailing somebody who says, you really, really do need to take these classes. And like I said, there's a difference between just saying, I really, really do need to take these classes and that's just not enough for me. But um, I really do want to send as many people as I can because I really, really do need this. Oh, really quickly, just on a personal level, can you read that? Doctor at some of your some of the majority institutions, colleges that are going really really fast. But you never know what kind of other opportunities can arise from this. I'm an Eastern European, you know, studies person. I got to see Mikhail Gorbachev speak to the Council of Europe on the anniversary party going on in China in person in Strasbourg. I mean, yeah. Um, Germany just had their elections in September. I went. Spent a weekend with an elected member of the German Parliament. We got elected there. Um, I went with him when he walked in here to meet with Germany, and uh, we went to all these different cute little villages in Germany around Stuttgart. And um, it was such hard work because all these little girls only had two years left at school and handball games and stuff like that. It was fantastic. It was so much fun. But the thing is that you never know what what opportunities are going to come up. The film student that met with us last night, he is still in Europe. He's still in Germany uh, on an internship working on documentaries for the Public Service and the National Film Service. So lots and lots of possibilities. This is really an excellent program with great people that have wonderful experiences. So yeah, please contact us. If you're worried about funds, don't be. Come to our session next week. Um, and good luck to some of you. Thank 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 you.
I didn't want to announce that she was coming because I thought she was going to be here at the start of class, and so I didn't want to like take y'all out. It's really a fantastic program. I didn't do that program, but I did a study in Northern Ireland that was similar. You know, it's through the political science department. You get credit and everything, and we worked with the same chairperson, Dr. Downs. It was awesome. I mean, the classes were easy but good information. It's not hard to get an A in these classes, and it's great for your GPA. <laughs> um, and it's just amazing. It, you know, I went to an English-speaking country, so it would be even more amazing to go to a foreign language country and see what more you could learn about different cultures. It, it was awesome. I want to do this program, but I'm graduating. So, um, but anyway, okay, so back to the boring stuff, solicitors. Um, so we just talked about in the 1980s, solicitors were given the right to appear before any court, but they still, for the most part, don't. Well, to try and give more incentive, in 1985, the Crown Prosecution Service, which is a prosecution service that works for the Crown, that works for the Queen, um, was developed to give prosecution jobs to barristers and solicitors. So they had this new law that solicitors, uh, yeah, sorry, solicitors can appear before any court. So this was the incentive. One big group with everybody working together. It didn't work. The barristers refused to do it. They said, this is a barrister's domain. We should be the ones that get to appear before the high court. It's not fair to take this away from us, so we're not going to do it. Um, so in 1990, they made another attempt. The Courts and Legal Services Act was passed. And that was designed to give solicitors more rights in court by moving more types of cases away from the high courts and the crown courts and down into more of the county courts, the magistrate courts, the district courts, places where the solicitors traditionally practiced. Still didn't really work. Still solicitors didn't really want to pursue that and barristers still wanted to have control of the court cases. So in 1999, they tried again with the Actus of Justice Act, or sorry, Access of Justice Act. This one was the level playing field. This gave the barristers, or sorry, the solicitors the right to appear in any court, all the way up to the crown courts, the highest courts of the land, and finally overruled the barristers and said, it is what it is. This is an even playing field. Anybody who wants to can litigate a case. The catch being, if you were a solicitor, you have to complete additional training if you want to be able to litigate a case. So you've already gone through a longer training period than most normal, most normal barristers would go through, and you have to go through even more to be able to litigate in front of any court. So as a result, still, most solicitors focus on estate law, preparing documents, and business advisement, business advisement rather than actual litigation. Now, one thing that's become popular in the last couple of years is for solicitors to take on work with American law firms. And when they do that, of course, they do practice in litigation just like our lawyers do. But for the most part, when in the UK, solicitors still don't appear before court. Okay, so now barristers. Totally different practice, totally different profession. Um, this is still much more of a formalized, traditional position in the UK society. It goes back centuries without really having gone through much change, unlike the solicitor position. 
and there still exists very what we would think of as antiquated traditions like the inns of court and I told you we were going to talk about these a little bit more detail the inns of court are actual buildings actual places where barristers and up until the 16th century solicitors lived they all lived together they all practiced together it's what's called their chambers um, very elaborate buildings they'd all have formal meals together it'd be it was supposed to be an exchange of ideas a learning place for everybody so if you were seeing all these other barristers every single day you'd be able to talk about different kinds of cases you'd be able to learn from one another and it's also seen as a status symbol it's very prestigious to live at the inns of court there are four inns and they still exist today Gray's Inn Lincoln Inn Middle Temple and Inner Temple Gray's Inn, Lincoln Inn, Middle Temple, Inner Temple. Now the way these started was in the 14th century. They were developed as guilds. They were developed as clubs for all the barristers um, so that they could practice, eat, and live together. Now in modern day, some barristers do practice outside of the inns. Some people do not still have their practice in the inns. But for the most part, a lot of barristers still do practice there. So just like solicitors, barristers at the end of their education or at the end of their entrance exam do a year-long training course. But this one is called the bar vocational course. So from here on out, we're dealing with the bar rather than the solicitor authority. And these courses are offered throughout England and Wales. They used to only be offered at the ends of court. You used to have to go to the ends of court to take your year-long course and then to finally take your exam at the end. Barristers, just like solicitors, enter into a training period, but it's shorter. They become what they call junior barristers. So we had trainee solicitors, now we've got junior barristers. This is only a year-long position. And rather than being kind of a gopher and someone who has to go along with other barristers and prepare documents and things, this is a little bit more independent study. This is you preparing yourself to litigate in front of court. Now here's the catch. Whereas the solicitor program, your training period, was at, at worst a little bit compensated and at best you might get picked up by a firm and they might pay you a great salary all the way through your training period, this year as a junior barrister is completely not paid. It is not a paid position in any way. You can't accept legal work for compensation can't prepare briefs for money you can't do any of that so to do this year of training you have to be able to pay for yourself hence why this has become kind of a thing for the wealthy because of course either you have to save it up or your family just has to be able to do it for you now although this training period is only a year long we saw two years with solicitors now it's only a year for barristers after that year of junior status as a barrister you're still not likely to get a whole lot of clients because you're very junior, it's a very structured system, there's a lot of hierarchy going on, so you're probably not going to get enough of a caseload to support yourself. So still, as a first or second year barrister after your year of training, you're probably going to have to pay your own way. Until recently, in 2004, barristers actually never met with clients face-to-face. -face. They only met with solicitors. 
the way it used to work is a person who had some kind of case or wanted to appear before court would go to a solicitor. The solicitor would prepare all the legal documents, tell them what they needed, how they needed to do it, and then that solicitor would hire a barrister to litigate in front of the court. So a little bit of an odd process for those of us that are used to just calling up a lawyer and saying, hey, I got a case, what can you do for me? Um, now, barristers are allowed to meet face-to-face -face with clients, but only if the barrister has completed additional training. So just like how solicitors are only allowed to litigate in front of court if they do extra training, barristers can only deal with clients if they do extra training. It's a very, compared to ours, it's a very unusual system. We're not used to doing things like that. Can someone shut the door, please? I'm sorry? Because there are legal issues with meeting with a client, you got to learn about attorney-client privilege. You've got to learn about what legal parameters you can operate within, what kinds of questions you can ask, what kinds of advice you can give. Because before this, barristers didn't give legal advice. They weren't legal counsel. They didn't talk to clients at all. So a client might come into my office and say, hey, I've got this kind of case. What do you think is going to happen? And I'd be like, uh, I don't know. I've never talked to someone about that before. Whereas a solicitor goes to school and does all their training based on learning how to talk to clients about how to prepare their case. Yeah. Barristers don't prepare for that at all. Basically, yes. They learn how to work within the court system so they know the rules of like, if someone says, I object, they know how to respond to that. Or if the judge says, motion, motion to adjourn, or the jury wants a recess, or you know, whatever. They learn all the different terminology and legal parameters of operating inside a court, of just doing litigation. But they don't learn how to prepare the legal documents, to prepare briefs, to work inside the legal system of common law. That's not their domain, that's solicitors. So solicitors do the paperwork, barristers do the big flashy in front of everybody work. Now barristers, unlike solicitors, cannot enter into partnerships and they cannot make up their own law firms. They operate independently and that is still true to this day. They also cannot work directly for or with a solicitor. It can't be a one-on-one -on -one relationship. Solicitors hire barristers to work with them on cases but they pick from a range of barristers who are experts in different types of trials. They don't always go to the same barrister. They, it's not a partnership. It's an employee-client relationship. Now, barristers ultimately, for the most part, are not in it just to be barristers. That's not the end game. They want to be judges. So there are steps on the way to getting that prestige and that kind of power. First off, it depends on how good you are. It depends on if, as a barrister, you have success in trials, you make a name for yourself by successful litigation, by persuasive litigation, and after about 10 years of being a barrister and practicing, you might be invited to become what they call Queen's Counsel. Sounds like a grand title, and it's because it's a very elite status. Only about 10% of all barristers will ever achieve that status. And what that usually means is, first of all, you add the title QC to the end of your name. So like for lawyers for us, I would be Bonnie Rayleigh Esquire 
over there I would be Bonnie Rayleigh Barrister QC. So I would be a barrister and part of the Queen's Council. And so because you have that flashy little title at the end of your name, just like getting a doctorate here, it means a raise in pay. It means better cases, higher money, more profile cases, you know, the big murder trial that everybody wants or whatever. And it might even mean working directly for the crown itself. So you might even get a legal case that involves the queen or her advisors or the royal family, et cetera, et cetera. They would only ever hire a barrister that had a Queen's Council title. So to do this, you must possess a better than average level of understanding of the rules and procedures of court. What to do if there's an objection against something you said, what to how to manage a case, how to speak to the jury, how to speak to the judge, and you must be very fast thinking. Barristers that survive best in court cases tend to be the ones that can answer quickly on their feet, that can respond to barrages of questions, that do well against other barristers that are litigating against them. Same as lawyer, trial lawyers here in the United States. So we'll talk about a little bit more about what becomes of barristers when after they get legal or Queen's Counsel in just a second, but just to go back a little bit. Um, legal assistance, how we think of it in the United States, legal aid, didn't exist in the United Kingdom until the 1940s. So until the 1940s, unless you could pay a solicitor or a barrister to actually take your case, there was no sort of pro bono work. There was no legal assistance like... For example, how we Mirandize criminals here in the United States and we tell them that if you cannot afford a lawyer, one will be provided to you, that didn't exist in the UK and still exists very differently than it does in the United States. In the US, we have a very formalized system. We have lawyers that work for the state who provide that service to people who can't afford a lawyer. In the United Kingdom, it's more how we think of pro bono work here. Solicitors and barristers offer part of their practice and part of their time and part of their service to people who can't afford lawyers, but it's not a group of people who do nothing but provide that service. It's every lawyer, every barrister, every solicitor does it a little. So it's not a formalized system like we have here. Now, doing the work that way requires a great deal more of government funding than we get here in the United States for legal aid. Because, of course, every time a solicitor or a barrister takes on a case like that, they do want to be compensated for it. And that compensation comes from the government. Since funding in every country around the world recently has been an issue for almost all government projects, this may change. There's a movement in the United Kingdom to move that system more towards what we think of as legal aid in the United States, which is a state-sponsored program where there are a group of barristers or solicitors who do nothing but provide that free service. But right now it doesn't exist like that. Okay, so keeping going with barristers and how to become a judge. The judiciary in the UK is not elected like it is in the majority of the United States. People are appointed to the bench. That's the term they use for it, which they do here too. So appointments, as you can imagine, were a very exclusive club of people who, for the most part, were all barristers, who all practiced from the ends of court, 
and who all had achieved the status of Queen's Counsel. Very few judges are ever appointed in the UK before the age of 40, even though most start practicing in their early 20s. And there are very few judges in England compared to the United States. There are only about 160 judges in the entire country today. Like I said, mostly all barristers and all members of the Queen's Council because it's an invitation process. It's not, or it was an invitation process. It wasn't a qualification process. You didn't take an exam to become a judge. You weren't popularly elected. It was a group of already judges who sat together and said, hmm, we know that guy. He'd be a great judge. Let's appoint him. Simplifying it, but that's how they did it. Um, now, the reason for this selection process and how exclusive they were is because becoming a judge was equal to becoming a knight. If you were appointed as a judge to a high court or to a queen's court, you were automatically given knighthood. Still true today. So it was a very big deal. The odd thing being that judges get paid, on average, much less than barristers and solicitors. So this goes back to the tradition of people from wealthy families who want the status more than they want the money. So that's a little bit of why it's developed from the barrister tradition rather than the solicitor tradition. Appointments to becoming a judge have traditionally been a very secretive process. Um, the Lord Chancellor's Office is where this originated. The Lord Chancellor's Office was a group of already existing high-position judges who would sit together, discuss candidates, and decide who to offer a position to. So every time a judgeship became available in a certain court, they would get together, meet, discuss their options, and offer someone the position. Positions of judgeships are very rarely ever turned down. People don't usually say no. However, times have changed, and in 2005 there was the Constitutional Reform Act. The Constitutional Reform Act came up, with what, oops, came up with what they called the Judicial Appointments Commission. The Judicial Appointments Commission is the group that now processes all the candidates for becoming judges. Now in recent years this has become more of a competitive process. People can actually submit applications instead of just having to be invited. However, it's still a group of high-ranking officials that to some extent do still have the right to say we like that, that guy and not that guy. And the reason I say guy is because judges are still predominantly in the UK middle-aged white males. A very, very large percentage. And for the most part, judges in the UK have graduated from either Oxford or Cambridge. They're being selected by their peers, so there's a lot of bias. As a matter of fact, the first female judge in the United Kingdom, her name's Lady Justice Hale, still practicing, wasn't appointed until 2004, which is vastly behind the times for the United States. And as far as minorities, I don't know the year that they were first appointed, but it has been a similar time frame. It's only been in the 2000s and above. Judges in the UK are accorded a great deal more respect 
than judges in the United States, often because of the difficulty of obtaining a position. So rather than anybody who has a law degree being allowed to run for the position, they have to go through this whole lengthy process. They have to be a barrister for at least 10 years, if not a, a great deal, much more time. And so with that comes an inherent level of experience that people anticipate from all of their judges. So in the UK, judges tend to be thought of as less biased than in the United States. Of course, that's arguable. You can see where there's probably a problem with that. But one thing that the UK argues is an advantage to this style of appointment, going through a selection process rather than just letting people be commonly elected, is that judges are free of two important things that we have here in the United States, governmental influence and social influence. Judges in the United States that are popularly elected serve a constituency, just like our senators do, um, just like members of the House of Representatives. They have a certain group or a certain district of people that they need to follow the ideas of in court. So at, as they litigate, their decisions tend to reflect their constituency. In the UK, it's not an issue. They're not elected. They have no one to please in particular. And here also, we have governmental appointments to judge positions, particularly the United States Supreme Court. And it's a very big deal every time a president approves someone for the United States Supreme Court because, of course, that person is usually from the same political party, usually of the same political ideology as the president of that time was. In the UK, not so. The government does not have any control over appointments. So over there, it's labor and conservative. Over here, it's Democrat and Republican. A judge might be appointed during a labor government who is, in fact, a conservative. Happens all the time. Just depends on who's appointing them. So judges can be appointed to certain courts. That's one way for them to get appointments, but they can also be appointed what's called a master. And a master judge is someone who processes cases before a trial. It's a judge who exists not to be over a particular court, but to try and, if they can, sort out cases before they have to go to trial. So judges that are masters have two options. They can litigate or they can decide outside of court. They can choose to settle. They can try and settle a case or they can filter out which cases need to go where. Some cases may need to go to a county court, some cases may need to go to a high court, and some cases may need to go all the way with the Queen's Court. <clears throat> so they're kind of a filtering process. It's not considered, even though the title is master, it's not considered as high of a position as being a judge appointed to a specific court. It's a step down. Judges can also be appointed magistrates just a different type of judicial title and instead of being a member of the high court and maybe previously being a member of Queen's Council, magistrates tend to be judges in district and county courts that preside over very minor criminal cases. So again, not quite as prestigious as just being appointed to a high court. Now once you've been appointed a judge, it is very, very rare that anybody is ever removed from that position. Hard to get fired. To be removed from the bench, you have to be requested to be removed by both the House of Lords and the House of Commons. So there actually has to be a parliamentary hearing, even for the most minor of judges. And then the Queen has to approve the decision to remove you from the bench. 
so it very rarely ever happens. Your book gives an example of the last time it happened was because a judge was smuggling drugs into the country. If that gives you an idea of how bad it has to be before you can be removed. So decisions that you make as a judge tend to be binding and don't tend to get you fired. Whereas decisions judges make here tend to reflect in their next election period whether or not they'll be elected again. And service as a judge is permitted till age 70. That's the retirement age in the United Kingdom for judges. That's a recent addition, though, because it used to be that judges in the United Kingdom sat into their 90s. Their oldest judge was 93 years old when he retired from the bench. Which, we've had similar things. We've had judges last until, I want to say 92. So that's your actors. That's who you see in the common law tradition in Great Britain. You see solicitors, barristers, and judges. That's the group. Anybody have questions? Good. All right. Y'all have a good day.